I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. Battlecast, we're talking about the Battle of Magnesia in 190 BC. But first, a couple of quick housekeeping things right off the top. We are on iTunes finally, so please review us. Also, check out the Facebook page at Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. On Patreon, just search Cauldron. You'll get an inside look at our plans for the future, special content, and the best ways to get some cool gear. All right. On to the battle cast. I've always thought it would be fascinating to listen in on a conversation between two of the best at something. Like if you had Manning and Brady together, who would they honestly say was the best ever? I know who I'd take. In a barroom debate, who wins, Sandra Day O'Connor or Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Did FDR and Stalin ever really let their masks down and connect as a couple of guys? I just think it would be wild to be the proverbial fly on the wall and listen in when two contemporary greats are shooting the breeze. I'm sure the the conversation would be way above my head. The whole checkers and chess thing applies here. But man, it would be cool to hear two individuals who have only each other as equals just get real. Sometime between 193 and 190 BC, Livy tells us a story of exactly that kind of conversation. Hannibal Barca, the great Roman hater and tactical wonderkin, was on the lamb after his defeat at the Battle of Zama in 202 BC. Fearing Carthage would turn him over to the Romans for retribution, he stayed one step ahead of his enemies by fleeing east. Eventually, he found himself in the employ of Antiochus III, head of the Seleucid Empire and a man on the make. Antiochus had ambitions and had garnered the attention of the Roman Senate, and they sent an army to Greece to settle some local disputes, but with the overall intention of keeping an eye on the old enemy and his new friends. That army was under the direction of the brothers Spio, with the younger soon-to-be Asiaticus, in the commander role, and the champion of Zama himself, Scipio Africanus, as the legate. At some point, the two titans of Zama, Scipio Africanus and Hannibal Barca, met on an ambassadorial mission to Syria, and had one of those fly-on-the-wall conversations. Scipio asked Hannibal whom he believed to be the greatest general of all time a classic sports bar conversation then and now. First, Hannibal said Alexander, for he took a small army and beat enemies with armies of innumerable men and brought that small army to the very ends of the known world. He ranked second Pyrrhus of Epirus because he was the first to teach castrumtation. Yes, I had to look that one up. It's the art of making or laying out a military camp. 
and nobody chose the battlefield better or put his men in better positions to win than Pyrrhus. Third, Hannibal named himself, without hesitation or explanation. Scipio broke into laughter and asked, What would you say if you had defeated me? And Hannibal, I can only assume, slowly turned to him, stony-eyed, and in his best Clint Eastwood deadpan said, Then, beyond doubt, I should put myself both before Alexander and before Pyrrhus and before all others. Hannibal, as that story proves, was a man of incredible abilities and boundless confidence. If I had one battle to fight in the ancient world and could pick my general, he is one of maybe three I'd choose. Which brings us to the curious case of the Battle of Magnesia, where Antiochus III apparently decided not to use arguably the greatest general of all time. The one non-Roman man that knew the Roman way of war more intimately than any enemy in Rome's thousand-year history. If your only ambition is being impeded by Roman armies, why not put the most implacable foe they had ever had in charge of your armies and hope for the best? I think the only way to answer that question is by trying to understand Antiochus III and his empire of quicksand, the Seleucid Empire. When Alexander the Great died in 323 BC, the ancient world was ripped apart by his favorites and his acolytes. This group would each carve their own little empire out of his legacy and forever be known as the Diadochi, or the successors. One of these men was Seleucus I, a favorite of Alexander's and the leader of his famed companions. After conquering and holding a large portion of what is now Iraq, Iran, and the Middle East, Seleucus was the victor of the great battle of Ipsus and began to spread his power into Anatolia with eyes on Macedonia itself. Upon landing in Europe and before he could finish his conquest, he was murdered and what ensued was a series of destabilizing wars and loads of infighting. Each successive heir was less suited to rule and lost Seleucid lands to rebellion and internal dispute and strife. That all stopped with Antiochus III, who inherited a disorganized and unstable empire at the ripe old age of 18. We don't know much about the man, but he must have had a prodigious appetite for work and war, for he completely turned the spiraling empire of his fathers around and even began to expand its borders again. Success against the Parthians, Bactrians, Ptolemies, and Arabs allowed him to secure his borders, and along with an extremely profitable treaty with the Indian ruler Sophagasinus, Antiochus was ready to turn his mind and might west, towards the dreams of his forefathers, and inadvertently towards the outskirts of Roman power. Rome at this point was getting her first real taste of true power, and she liked it. After weathering all the blows of the Second Punic War and still somehow coming out on top, indeed with more land than she could have dreamed of, Rome was sitting pretty. For the first time, the Roman Senate could expect that their decrees could and would be followed by everyone, even sovereign neighbors. After the Battle of Zama, Rome's sphere of influence exploded and allowed her to take a much heavier hand in the politics of countries outside of her borders. 
Greece was an unstable hotspot with a constellation of small, heavily armed states often at war and with constantly shifting alliances and petty grievances that Rome was rapidly losing the patience to deal with. However, its proximity to mainland Italy and the wealth generated by some Roman patrician families made Greece and her squabbles very important to the stability and commerce-loving Roman Senate. What Rome wanted was a buffer state, a strong, semi-independent state that would function as a beacon or early warning device if some eastern empire tried to move westward. Antiochus was just such a threat. Believing he had hereditary rights to Thrace, Antiochus petitioned the Senate but was summarily told to leave mainland Europe. Rome saw Asia Minor as a natural buffer. Antiochus saw it as an integral part of his empire with its rich ore deposits and many busy ports. He couldn't afford to lose it and instead believed Greece to be the natural no-man's land. Because of his failure to understand the Roman mind with its fierce loyalty and long memory, Antiochus III made two grave mistakes that would cost him his empire. First, he moved west and conquered more and more land even into Greece and he bypassed and surrounded a small but important state in Pergamum, whose King Eumenes had long been given a friend and ally status by the Senate, and would in the battle to come lead his men with distinction. Second, and more importantly, Antiochus III had given asylum to Hannibal, the man behind Rome's worst defeats, and the author of a self-sworn forever war against Rome itself. After the diplomatic solution failed and a brief but decisive conflict favored the Romans and Greece, Antiochus moved back across the Hellespont. At this point, Antiochus used the superior recruiting and logistical ability of Hannibal to form a fresh fleet and directed him to combine that fleet with his existing one at Ephesus. Unfortunately for the Carthaginian, he was intercepted and defeated by an allied Roman Rhodian fleet at Yermadon, forcing Hannibal to flee, flee to Crete. This is why I believe he was not even present at Magnesia and so had no way of influencing its outcome. The Romans crossed the Hellespont and were in Asia Minor hot on Antiochus's heels. At this point, Antiochus sent envoys to the Romans stating he was willing to accept their initial terms, that he'd leave Europe. But sensing an opportunity, Rome moved the goalposts, saying they now wanted him to withdraw fully from Asia Minor. Recognizing the futility of negotiations, Antiochus moved further east and inland, seeking a solid defensive position, eventually finding it at Magnesia. Having a solid understanding of what was going to happen and a healthy fear of Roman ruthlessness, Antiochus holed up and refused battle. In a clever piece of generalship, the Romans crept closer and closer each night to the Seleucid camp in an attempt to goad the Seleucids into battle. Antiochus probably caught wind of the grumblings and fear of his own men, and unable to move further, he readied his army for battle. Before we get into the forces on each side and the battle itself, I want to break down what has to be one of the coolest and most impractical weapons in the history of warfare, the war elephant. 
Ammianus Marcellinus is quoted as saying, The lines of elephants, wrinkled monsters of enormous height, which advanced slowly loaded with armed men, a sight more dreadful than any other form of horror, as I have often declared, end quote, which pretty well sums up how terrifying and imposing an elephant charge could be. For perspective, imagine a 10 to 12 foot tall creature with a hoda making it maybe 15 feet tall. Add 10,000 pounds and picture it crashing down on you at 10 plus miles an hour. It'd be like a city bus loaded with sharp points and anger charging you. Many of Alexander's successors used elephants, but the Seleucids made it their calling card by controlling the trade with India. Elephants were exorbitantly expensive due to the fact that breeding in captivity was unreliable, which made capture and training the more effective method. Add in the cost of arming, armoring, feeding, and daily maintenance, and they were the ancient equivalent of an aircraft carrier. In action, these beautiful, kind, intelligent animals were imposing and monstrous with a mahout or driver on the neck applying pressure behind the ears with an ankush, a hooked stick, to steer the animal. He also had a hammer and spike to drive into the brain of the animal if, or when, it went wild on the battlefield. The tower strapped to the back was called a hoda and was made of wood and leather and could hold three to four spearmen and missile troops. Simply put, these were the tanks of the ancient battlefield, with huge upsides from breaking enemy formations, bulldozing fortifications, or even being used as living breakwaters for river crossings, and have been used widely for logistical reasons up to and beyond World War II. Impressive and frightening, elephants pose many issues for the men that they fought, first being the thick hide that had to be hacked into to cause damage. The very smell and sounds that these animals made could panic horses and terrify men. And when armored, as they often were, elephants became almost impenetrable and could be fitted with steel points or swords on their tusks for maximum damage. Of course, with all this great power came some inevitable flaws, chief among them being an inherent unpredictability that I think comes along with their intelligence. They would regularly panic into their own infantry, wreaking havoc, and could be easily beaten or bypassed with tricks like pigs greased and lit on fire, open lines in the infantry formation, and well-timed and aimed missiles. There were also large targets that were handicapped fairly easily by caltrops, pits, spikes, and when fired upon by missiles, their skittish temperament would cause confusion and enrage them. When all else failed, there would be men assigned to hack at the hamstrings and trunks of these poor animals. Due to these weaknesses, the time period in which elephants could win battles simply by being on the field was fairly short, and although always impressive, the war elephant quickly became an obsolete battlefield oddity. Sometime in December 190 BC, the two camps were facing off on excellent cavalry terrain a flat, even expanse of dirt nestled between the river Phrygos and Hermos. Picture a triangle with one tip pointing west and the other two pointing north and south. The Roman camp was closer to the western point and the Seleucid camp was in between the north and south tips. On the day of the battle, the Romans fielded 30,000, maybe a little bit more. Modern sources say 50,000. 
That, that'd be two regular legions and two Latin ala legions, which would be made up of Italian allies, along with 4,000 cavalry split between either flank. And in this case, the, the Romans had a pretty large block of cavalry, somewhere around 3,000 on their right wing. Drawn up in their standard position, they must have been impressive and frightening in their uniformity. Antiochus had a far more unique force made up of units from all over his far-flung empire. What they lacked in continuity, the Seleucid army made up in numbers, with 70 to 80,000 infantry and cavalry, not to mention a chariot force and 54 elephants. Livy and Appian, the main sources for the battle, say Antiochus mirrored the Romans with cavalry on both wings and a strong contingent of heavy infantry in the center. On his right wing, facing a weaker Roman cavalry force, Antiochus positioned his heavy cataphracts and contingents of fierce Galatian and other infantry totaling some 17,000 men. In his center, Antiochus had a massive block of phalangites, the classic Greek spearmen, numbering 16,000. That was 10 sections wide and 32 rows deep. On his left, Antiochus had another strong force of 10,000 cavalry and 6,000 infantry with chariots arrayed in front. His elephant force was oddly, and probably mistakenly, placed in small groups in the gaps of his massive phalanx. The ancient writers say that from the center of Antiochus's line, one could look in either direction and not see the end. With the field set and preparations made, Antiochus was ready, and to be honest, on paper, the Seleucids should have simply swamped the Romans with their massive numerical superiority. That being said, the men of the Roman army at this point in time were some of the best and most experienced soldiers the world has ever seen. Having cut their teeth on the field of the Second Punic War, these Romans knew how to fight, and even more importantly, knew how to handle adversity and how not to panic. Antiochus struck first, swinging his entire right wing into the Roman force opposite them, smashing the cavalry and infantry on the Roman left. Making quick work of this force, the Seleucids broke through the Roman line, and Antiochus made the first of many mistakes. Instead of circling back to follow up their success, they drove straight for the Roman camp. On the Seleucid right, Antiochus's chariots charged, but were easily driven back by Roman missile units, and in retreating into their own lines created a good deal of confusion and disorder. At this moment, the huge block of Roman cavalry on the Roman right charged home and obliterated the already disoriented Seleucid force, chasing them farther and farther from the field. While this fast-paced madness had been happening on either flank, in the center the two infantry forces did what they do best and began the deadly tug-of-war that only happens when shield walls meet. There may have been no stronger ancient infantry formation than a well-trained, tightly-packed phalanx, but once that cohesion and order was broken, the phalanx could become a death trap. Unfortunately for the Seleucids, their elephants panicked when the legionaries attacked, fleeing back through their own lines and disrupting the all-important order of their formation. Even with this turn of events, the Seleucid infantry was able to maintain a strong defense as they tried to slowly withdraw. But at the Roman camp, experience was proving its worth. 
the reserve left to guard the camp had successfully mounted a defense and given enough time for a tribune named Lepidus to rally the broken legion and drive Antiochus from the field, a feat so great that 2,200 years later, we still know this simple soldier's name. As this Roman success was happening, again, experience came into play as the victorious Roman cavalry on the right, instead of looting the Seleucid camp, returned to the field and slammed into the unprotected Seleucid phalanx left flank and rear. Combining this sudden onslaught with the calm and deadly efficiency of the Roman legion in front of them, the Seleucid infantry had no chance and quickly dissolved into a mass of terrified, surrendering, and fleeing men. Once the dust had settled, the aftermath was incredibly one-sided. Another indication that some Burkisms were being told by the ancient writers. And a Burkism is what my family calls an exaggeration or flavoring of a story, just for future reference. According to the sources, the Romans, even though their entire left flank collapsed, only lost somewhere around 400 men. Meanwhile, the Seleucids lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 which means, roughly, two Seleucid men were killed every two and a half seconds for eight hours. That is some grim work. Very grim. Magnesia was the final battle of the Roman Seleucid War, and Antiochus and his entire empire never recovered. The Romans forced a crippling treaty on him, making him pay 15,000 talents, which in modern money, if each talent was worth $1.25 million, would equal somewhere in the neighborhood of $26 billion. Side note, I am shit at math, so that all may be wildly incorrect, just letting you know. The Seleucids were also forced into forfeiting huge tracts of land in Asia Minor over to the Roman allies making the new border the Taurus Mountains. Antiochus was even forced to limit his already small navy, and sadly, he had to terminate his entire force of elephants. Those wonderful, amazing animals were destroyed, even though they had actually aided the Roman attack. Rome now controlled the majority of the northern Mediterranean coastline, and was the true arbiter of power throughout the Mediterranean world. From Spain to the Hellespont, Rome was supreme. Unfortunately for Antiochus, the Seleucid Empire came sliding and crashing down around him. After Magnesia, Roman power, Parthian expansions, and the internal strife ate away at what little control he still had. While trying to push his eastern border back to its rightful location in Persia, Antiochus was killed while pillaging a temple and so ended the last truly powerful king of the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucid Empire would eventually fall to the invasion of Tigranes the Great of Armenia in 83 BC. The Seleucid legacy, however, was strong and would remain intact in the region throughout Roman, Parthian, and Sassanid rule until the Arab invasions in the 7th century AD. Alright, so that's the Battle of Magnesia, its beginnings, its aftermath, pretty cool about war elephants... So here's a few things to think about for your theories. If Rome lost, what does a non-Roman Eastern Mediterranean look like? Could the Seleucid Empire have stabilized if they had been successful and maybe stuck around giving competition to Rome? Uh, 
maybe a strong independent Greek state would have emerged. And with the Parthians on the move, could the Seleucids have stayed strong, or would the Parthians have beaten them before the Romans could get back to finish the job? And then you'd have another Eastern empire that's taken that position. And the big doozy that I have that seems to be a, a question that historians have had since the Battle of Magnesia, why not use Hannibal? Why did he use Hannibal to piddle around in the Aegean Sea with his boats? Why not use him to do what he do does best and kill Romans? And could Hannibal have won given the obvious advantages? I think the numerical superiority alone would have been made this uh, a walk in the park for Hannibal. Where was he at the moment of Magnesia? What was he doing? And if he had won, would he have started a, another rebellion? Are we looking at an early version of the Third Punic War? If that's the case, could Rome have survived a newly revitalized, rebellious Carthage, Eastern Mediterranean, maybe another uprising in Spain? I, I just wonder if if all of Rome's enemies at this moment might not have looked at it as an opportunity to, to start some shit. So that's some stuff to think about. I want you to make sure that you uh, mull those over, but come up with your own stuff. If you have a thought or a theory that you think is interesting that I haven't mentioned or we haven't gotten to, fire away. Thank you so much for listening, and I really cannot wait to read your theories and thoughts. Next episode will be our first theory cast, and I plan on reading 50% ahead of time and prepping them, and then opening 50% on the spot, and we can see which works better. Check us out again on Facebook at Cauldron History of World Battle by Battle, and go to the website for images and our sources at cauldronpodcast.com. Again, we're finally on iTunes, so check us out there. Just search Cauldron and look for the kick-ass logo that my sister-in-law whipped up. And please rate and review us for the love of God. We need those reviews. And I know it's a bit early to be passing the hat, but if you liked what you heard and are interested in hearing more and maybe getting some cool swag, go to patreon.com and find us at Cauldron. Also, for a great listen, Tune into Battles of the First World War podcast, where Mike is about to dig into the American Meuse-Argonne Offensive of 1918. Next episode is all you guys, so go to the theory page on the website at cauldronpodcast.com and shoot me your awesome ideas, theories, thoughts, and just the wild things you got clanging around in your head. All right, so again, my name is Cullen Burke, and this has been Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle.